0: to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, lots and lots of news today, which is funny because when we arrived here today, it was kind of a normal day. There wasn't a whole ton going on, but just in the last couple of hours, three hours, um... It's become very busy. There's a hearing going on on Capitol Hill right now with a Twitter whistleblower who um, has just said just moments ago that the FBI warned Twitter that it has at least one Chinese intelligence agent on its payroll Mm. and that the Chinese intelligence service is collecting user data uh, surreptitiously on Twitter users. Now, what they're going to do with that, who knows? And if the Chinese intelligence service wants my email address, for example, it's all over the internet. So yeah, I don't know what they're going to do with stuff like that. But anyway, that's kind of big news. A mm-hmm. um, lot of other stuff going on too. Uh, before we get into the substantive things, though, I did want to say one thing. Maggie Halberstam mm-hmm. is that how you say her name? From uh, Halberman, <laughs> yeah, Halberman from the New York Times investigative reporter who covered the Trump administration. Yep. And she's also a commentator for CNN. She's coming out with a new book. It's going to be released on October the 4th. There was a clip on CNN last night that was so fascinating to me. What was it? It was that the day after the election, Donald Trump told aides and family members that he's just not going to move out of the White House.
1: <laughs> that, just, I mean, that's what he seemed like he was going yeah, to do, right? He's he, just
0: going to refuse. That's very funny. And he said, what are they going to do? They can't throw me out. And I won the election. They stole it from me. I'm just not going to move out. And so his aides kind of had a little mini panic about this. Like, what do they do? Mm -hmm. And a couple of them did a little bit of research. And the only case in American history that came close to somebody refusing to leave the White House was um, Mrs. Lincoln Mm -hmm. after Abraham Lincoln was shot. Uh, she stayed for an extra five weeks. She lost her mind. She she was clinically insane. Yeah. yeah. Yes. In fact, her son Robert Todd Lincoln had her institutionalized uh, in Chicago. Ah, uh, she was insane. And she just refused to to move out. And Andrew Johnson didn't care because he was a bachelor and he was living in the Willard Hotel anyway. Mm-hmm. so he didn't really care. But anyway, otherwise, it was I unprecedented, mean,
1: far be it from me to suggest Maggie Haverman had anything wrong. But the one the thing that I <laughs> question here is didn't didn't Trump and Melania in particular? Famously hate living in the White House. Hate. I wanted would rather hate. be on Park Avenue. Well, They'd you'll, rather be in Mar That
0: Melania remained in New York for six, seven, eight months yeah. after Trump won the election. Yeah. Because she just didn't want to move to Washington.
1: Yeah. Oh, it didn't yeah, Well their son was, was in school, school yeah, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But, yeah. She yeah, famously you know. hated it here. You know. Yeah, crazy.
1: Man, I'm just seeing another headline because I looked this up about Trump talking to his Diet Coke valet, and I'm just wishing, wouldn't, right. wouldn't it be great to have a Diet Coke valet?
0: He, pr- he would press a red button, and a moment later a guy would walk in with a Diet Coke.
1: I would like to just press the button here <laughs> that allows us to talk to the engineers and say, could somebody send me a Diet Coke, please? And get right. one for John, too. Put it on my tab. Yeah.
0: Yeah, crazy.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: Apparently, according to Haberman, He even asked the Diet Coke valet, you think I should stay or should I go? That's pretty funny.
1: (laughs) I mean, this is the thing with Trump. He's such a... He did such... Bad things and crazy things. But he also said a lot of stuff that was funny that people took, you know, when all the times he was like, I'm a prime physical specimen. He's obviously joking. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. And so, but every single thing that he said was related as though he said it with with absolute deadpan seriousness. And now, you know, when you are a president, you have to be thoughtful about when you joke and when you don't joke. Right. But you are allowed to make obvious jokes in speeches, right? I, so who knows? Who knows? I mean, w- on one hand, I think it's totally possible that he said, "No, nah, what are you going to do? Kick me out?" <laughs> and on the other hand, I think it's totally possible that he said something like that well, in jest,
0: and everyone went, "Oh my god!" Right? And one of the things that Haberman glosses over is that he only talked like this for a day or two after the election, and then oh, so a normal amount of time, right? To pretend that you won an election, you lost, yeah. yeah. And then at the end of November, a reporter for The Washington Post said, are you going to leave? And he said, of course I'm going to leave. You know that I'm going to leave. So, I mean, he was mad. He was... He probably has convinced himself that he won the election. Yeah. If you repeat that lie over and over, sure. And he times. had a
1: lot of people around him telling him the same thing. You know, yeah. I mean, he had people telling him that he hadn't won it. Sure.
0: For sure. Sure.
1: But like, there were enough people who were willing to come in and say, "No, no, no, you won, sir. Let's let's hang my like pants."
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to talk about in the Trump case. We're going to have um, Bruce Fine uh, tell us about these forty subpoenas that that the Justice Department issued on Monday and Tuesday, and they seized the cell phones of two uh, top aides to Donald Trump. We'll get into that. We're going to talk about some fighting, pretty serious fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan that broke out uh, last night. Uh, The Russians are trying to uh, negotiate a settlement. It looks like they already have negotiated a, a ceasefire. That would be sort of in addition to the ceasefire that was already in place.
1: Yeah, I mean this is ongoing. This <laughs> it's has bad. been a, 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 since 2020. Was that the first yeah, Nagorno Karabakh? Uh, Four thousand
0: people were killed.
1: Yeah, the, that was the first skirmish. There was another one relatively recently, uh, and now this. So it doesn't seem like a problem that's going to go away. And you have no. two very important backers here: Russia uh, with Armenia and Turkey with, with Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. And uh, you know, like.
0: And they have, you know, broader national interests that intersect a lot of times, Uh you know, Libya, Syria, um, Ukraine. Yeah. So this is very complicated. Yeah. Very interesting. Hey, I wanted to say one other thing. I'm sorry if we could go back to Donald Trump for a second. Oh, please. We we We, can't get away from him. We made light yesterday of the fact that he got off the plane wearing golf uh, shoes, golf cleats and we said, you know, is it is he here to prepare for an indictment, is he here to go golfing? He actually did go to his golf club in Loudoun County, Virginia. Mm-hmm. But he didn't bring any golf clubs with him. Mm-hmm. They just walked from from hole to hole to hole. And so I guess it was his way of having a private conversation with his attorneys and advisors. Maybe. Cuz nobody played any golf. <gasps>
1: Oh, John, you know what? I have to send you this story, Mm. Uh, but it's a story about how a prison in California is accused of uh, spying on conversations between inmates and their lawyers, speaking of trying to have a private conversation with your your lawyer. They're
0: not ever supposed to do that. And, you know, people accuse them of doing it all the time.
1: I suspect we'll have a conversation perhaps with Paul Wright about this in the future. It was a story that caught my eye that I meant to send to you. Uh, we're also going to talk about inflation. Yeah. Still a thing. Gas prices are down, but the prices of everything else are not. And uh, yeah, all signs pointing toward unless the Fed decides to change their strategy, right. we're going to see more interest rate hikes because they've said yeah. over and over, the last thing they want to do is ease up on the brakes
0: too soon. That's right. It's so, look, it looks like three qu- another three quarters of a percentage point, yeah. which is dramatic.
1: Uh, we're going to talk a little bit, we'll do a little bit of a public health roundup too. And in particular, I'm interested in this story about efforts to tax alcohol. And I just, I came across this figure because I mean, I, I like to have a drink, right? Yeah, me too. I don't want to ban alcohol at all, <laughs> no. right? But we do just sort of collectively ignore it as a drug that has consequences. Yes. Right? Uh, and and so I noticed this from the CDC. Excessive alcohol use was responsible for more than 140,000 deaths each year, from 2015 to 2019. Now Mm. our opioid crisis death toll has just crept over 100,000. It's like 108,000 for 2021, right? So like the deaths from alcohol are at the same level of this crisis. And to be fair, right, these alcohol deaths are not deaths from excessive drinking in the moment, right? It's like long-term and short-term, right? So if you combine long-term drug deaths uh you know that that figure would increase a lot more too. But still, like it it does have a lot of consequences, sometimes uh much younger than you would expect. And yet we still as a culture really kind of condone mm-hmm. drinking to excess and see it as a rite of passage and, uh, and you know make lots of jokes about it. And like again, you know Mm-hmm. Try dragging me out of the bar, but like, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's 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 something that we should talk about. The New Yorker yeah. a couple of years ago had a big piece on uh, alcohol's relationship with cancer, which we all just sort of collectively go. My grandfather, I don't, I can't hear you. You know,
0: my grandfather died of uh, of throat cancer that the doctors attributed to fifty years of pouring poison down his throat.
1: And I mean, you got to be allowed to do lots of stuff in this life that's fun. It yes. doesn't prolong your life. Right. And that doesn't, your whole goal every single day doesn't need to be, how can I possibly live longer and yeah. cling cling to this mortal coil a few more seconds, right? right. But, but it is, we, we do have a sort of collective blind spot when it comes to alcohol. And so I think that's an interesting story to get into.
0: That um, sounds like a good plan.
1: The other story that we definitely want to mention that we are keeping an eye on is this potential for a nationwide rail strike.
0: Yeah, this is a very big deal, yeah, and it's is, just now crept into the press.
1: Yeah, you've had a couple of stories off and on going, hey, guys, this is uh, this could be bad. Uh, this is potentially tens of thousands of freight rail workers. Uh, and negotiations have been underway between the rail industry and about a dozen unions. And over the summer, the White House set up this emergency board to try to mediate disputes between the unions and the carriers. And ultimately, the board recommended, recommended a cumulative raise of 24 percent from 2020 to 2024, an immediate 14 percent wage increase covering the first three years. And that got most of the unions on board tentatively although their members still have to vote on the proposal. But there are two unions holding out who want better working conditions and in particular, better um, si- and a better understanding of sick leave and paid sick leave. Mm-hmm. And so these are unions that represent engineers and conductors who say their workers have to stay on call for days at a time. They have to work 12-hour shifts with little notice. They're penalized for calling in sick. And they want this to change. And people say, hey, look, we we don't have a... We're just on call. Yeah. And so you have to, like, schedule your doctor's appointments and then just cross your fingers that yeah. you don't get called in and have to cancel them. And, and this is one of the things that they want to change. They represent uh, about 50,000 workers. And they say their unions are still ready to negotiate, but that the industry is not backing down. And so you still have no agreement. And on Friday is the end of a federally mandated 30 day cooling off period. Correct. So after Friday strikes and lockouts are possible. There is not yet any plan that's been announced to strike. But a spokesman for one of the unions said a walkout is an option. And 99 percent of participating members of that union voted in July to authorize a strike. strike. So this is getting closer than we've be into a strike like this. It- oh,
0: yeah. And I would add two things. One, um, Amtrak today began canceling um, uh, travel yep. uh, in anticipation of this strike taking place. And
1: apparently also Norfolk Southern. And
0: Norfolk Southern. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And 15,000 nurses went on strike today mm-hmm. in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. For the same reasons. Yeah. Uh, they're looking for 27% pay increase, which would make the average salary go from $56,000 to $71,000, which is peanuts, I think, for a nurse. Yeah. And um, and they're looking for uh, more flexibility on uh, paid time off.
1: Yeah. 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 And so, you know, the White House absolutely does not want this strike no to happen, way. right? They this don't want the supply chain. This going to just smash the economy. Yeah. But the freight union doesn't want to have to make these concessions or the the freight industry, the rail industry doesn't want to have to make these concessions uh, to the union. And, you know, who knows what they might try and do is uh, have them strike and then say, oh, no, look, it's going to destroy our economy. We need Congress to to step in here and do something. Well, you know what? To need? mandate that they have to work under these conditions.
0: Uh, I think that would be a mistake. I think you're exactly right. That's what's going to happen, but I think it would be a mistake. This has happened a couple of times before in American history, during the Truman administration with the steel industry and again during the Kennedy administration with the steel industry, and presidential leadership got the two sides to the table mm-hmm. and they were able to negotiate settlements. Mm-hmm. That's what we need right now. Presidential leadership. Not we'll to force workers to 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 work Uh, In unfair conditions for too little pay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've got one more. I know we have our next guest and I want to bring him in and start this conversation. But uh, just on the issue of labor, there was a story about uh, Starbucks. Starbucks announced new student loan repayment tools and a savings account program for all U.S. employees who are not union members. So they are fighting this hard. They are saying, "Oh, sure, we'll do all of this for our non-union uh, members, but uh, the unions are going to have to negotiate with us to get these benefits." So they're they're pulling out all the stops too. And, and prevent- Howard
0: Schultz thought he should be the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. Yeah, he's a he's a union buster.
1: Yeah, well, plenty of the Democratic Party
0: are union well, busters at this yeah, point. Unfortunately.
1: Uh, I have some more headlines about the royal family that I want to get into, but I think we can save those for the end of the show. Okay. Why don't we take a quick break here and we'll come back and get into what's going on in Armenia, what's happening in Greece and some other parts of the world that we shouldn't ignore. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
0: political misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Greece's conservative government of Konstantin Mitsotakis is finding itself in trouble, big trouble, despite the fact that Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is threatening military action against Greece in the Aegean. Last month, word leaked out that the director of the Greek intelligence service had ordered that the phones of a minor socialist politician and CNN's economic reporter be tapped. Mitsotakis claimed that he knew nothing about the act, but he fired the intelligence chief and made a formal apology in parliament to the targets. But that doesn't seem to be good enough for the Greek people. Even though Mitsotakis' conservative New Democracy Party is ahead of the socialists, By 8 percentage points in recent polls, a majority of Greeks, for the very first time, want Mitsotakis to resign. Elections must take place within the next nine months, and the timing could be a perfect storm to force an otherwise accomplished and previously popular prime minister out of office. In other news, deadly border clashes erupted between Armenia and Azerbaijan, with Armenia saying that at least 49 of its troops were killed. The Russian foreign ministry says that it has brokered a ceasefire, and it urged both sides to abide by the tenets of the original ceasefire from two years ago. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is in Mexico City today, a trip that seems to be a little bit under the radar, and President Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping will meet on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, later this week, probably Thursday. We're joined here in the studio by Tony Alexiou. He's a principal at the Minotaur Group, a Washington, D.C. consulting firm that specializes in geopolitical risk and homeland security consultancy. Welcome back, Tony. Thanks, John. Thanks. Pleasure. Always always happy to be back here with you guys. Oh, we really do enjoy having you. We always have such a great conversation. And I'd like to start by asking you about Greece. To me, this is a story that's very important, but it's generally under the radar right now. Prime Minister Mitsotakis has been a very popular leader. He led Greece out of an economic disaster. He steered the economy through COVID and he has strengthened relations pretty dramatically with the United States. It looked until recently like he was going to just sail to re-election. But then the scandal broke. It's a scandal that is utterly nonsensical to me. Uh, Why tap the phone of a minor a uh, member of the European parliament and a CNN economic reporter, it doesn't make any sense.
2: You know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. If you're going to tap the phone to somebody, at least make it worthwhile. Right. <laughs> For
0: that right. If you're going to, if you're going to take that yeah, kind that. of a risk, Absolutely. Make it worthwhile. Absolutely,
2: and it was it was absolutely it was a politically motivated job by by the Greek intelligence service. Uh, the politician himself was Nikos androulakis He's, he's uh, with the PASOK party, which is the socialist party, in, one of the socialist one parties of the in one of the two that yeah. back in the day was a big deal. Yeah. And it's not so much anymore. Um, Syriza has become the other big socialist party. The major opposition is what, what uh, uh, is the one that Andreouliakis should be fearing in the election. Uh, you know the financial reporters. I understand he was trying to dig up some dirt on the government's financial stuff. So, right. I, I can understand. I, I suppose why they picked him. I don't really understand why they picked Angelakis. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. If you're going to do this, do do something big at least. If you're going to take the heat for it, and that's what. Uh, that's what's happening there at this point. Uh, the problem is with Mr. Dagis at this point. When he, when he first took power, one of the first things he did was put the intelligence service under his direct control. It yes. wasn't beforehand. Correct. So it, it, for him to turn around and say, I don't really know what happened, it, it does, it, there's
0: no way he can say Okay, well, that was, a, that was a follow-up question yes. I wanted to ask you. He, he went before parliament and he said, I had no idea this was happening. You don't
2: believe him. I don't buy that. He may not know the finer details, but there is no way he was oblivious to this. And if he was, it doesn't look good either. Because then the Greek people are saying, "Okay, well, hold on a second here. These these guys report directly to you, and you don't know what they're doing. So either you don't have control of them, or you just suck as a manager, which is even worse. Yeah. So which is it at this point right now? Uh, so he's trying to dig his way out of this. And the one saving grace that he has is that the election is a while away still. Right. And, and overall, you know, Greeks are the average Greek right now is living better than they have lived in the past decade. So he's got that going for him. And if he's if he's a smart guy and if his team is smart, they will push that narrative completely." You know, Alexis Tsipras was the was the, uh, the, the the leader of Syriza, which is the main opposition party. He's the right. one calling for – one of the people calling for his resignation. Yes. And Tsipras has done his own – when he was in prime minister, he's done his own fair share of stuff. So he's yeah. got nothing to say about resigning at right. this point
0: for anybody. And Syriza yeah. is, is eight percentage points behind new democracy in the polls, yes. which in, in Greece is – is a massive landslide. It is. It these, is. These it is. elections are usually decided by two or three percent. Because points. they've
2: got dozens of political parties there. Yeah. And it's like everybody takes a little sliver or something, and it's it's you know one percent is a big deal. So I, I don't see Mr. is not winning re-election. Quite frankly, He's and that got, election has to yeah. come,
0: I think, by July. Is I that, believe so.
2: Yeah, I believe so. Uh, and given the scandal, if he was smart, he would take that all the way to July if he could at yeah. this point, and just walk a fine line and, and tout the achievements of the Greek government, which there's a great many of them in the last few years since he's been in power. Yeah, quite frankly, you know, I've never, you know, I come from a family that's not a, you know, being Greek in background. Not we're not we're never New never Democracy supporters, but I'll give it, I'll, I'll take my hat off to to Mr. Takis. He's done a hell of a job in Greece. Yep, and he's turned that country around from you know from from decades of of just 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 bad things. Yes, <laughs> it wasn't going well there at all. So. Uh, you know, a lot can happen in nine months, and I, I think that this will blow over as I, it's already starting to, you know, we happened to be in Greece this past summer when this, when this, was, this was breaking the story, and it was huge news there. It was probably the biggest yeah, thing that no happened doubt. in Greece for for, for years. Um, it's dying off quietly, and I think between time and touting achievements is what's going to be Mr. Dax's friend at this point right now, So, yeah. and, and to not – do This again,
0: <laughs> yeah, don't <laughs> Just, do this again. I, I'll add too that he fired the the head of the intelligence service and replaced him with a career diplomat, yeah, which do. has happened before. Yeah, when sure. I was stationed in Greece in the late 90s, uh, there was a, a huge scandal, it almost collapsed the government because the Greeks were secretly hosting, um, uh, uh the PKK founder. What's his right. name, so, uh, Ochalan um, Abdullah Ochalan, and um. Like I say, it almost brought down the government. In In the end, the intelligence service uh, director, who was a military officer, was fired and replaced by a career diplomat. That didn't really work because he wasn't interested in intelligence. He he wanted to be ambassador to uh, to Russia. Right. Uh, this may be different.
2: It is different because any diplomat has at least a basic understanding of intel and should have yeah. an interest in intel because that's a kind of uh, – they brokered information. Uh what this person is, I, I get the feeling. What I understand is, a, is a is it just it's a bureaucrat? Yeah, will blend in with the background yep. and make this thing go away. Yes, <laughs> and, and make no more noise about this thing. And that's what he needs, right? That's now. what the conservatives want. Absolutely, there's, they just need this to, to blend in. And there's
0: potentially that. a bigger issue um, with Greece too. There was an there was an op-ed in today's Kathimerini, which is the New York Times of Greece. It actually has a New York Times insert in it. It's a very serious right of center paper. It was an op-ed today written by Senator um, uh, Chris Van Hollen of uh, of Maryland, and he, he was warning Greeks, as if they need to be warned, about Turkey. You know, uh, Erdogan is facing an election in the next year. He's behind in the polls. For the first time in decades, Turks seem to be united against him the economy is out of control, 88% inflation in Turkey and what he needs to unite the Turkish people is a nice clean little war. Right. And so we're seeing a lot of statements coming out of Ankara, uh, all of a sudden after a century, more than a century now claiming Turkish ownership or Turkish sovereignty over the Aegean islands, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous Absolutely. and outrageous. Mm-hmm. um, Do you think this is going to be a problem? We've got the Greeks last week going to NATO, the EU and the United Nations and asking for help against Turkey. You've got uh, Mitsotakis going directly to the uh, to the United States uh, in a call to Biden last week saying, look, the Turks are serious about about invading us. How does this play out? I don't think
2: the Turks will go for it again. To be honest with you,
0: uh, there's a lot of
2: rhetoric, and yes, Turkey's economy is in shambles right now. The economy, uh, the inflation's out of control. People are hungry, losing their jobs, and they're not happy with Erdogan right now. So, what he's trying to do, like any any leader in his position would try to do at this point, my so mic's not in front of me. As so there we are. Um, What they're trying to do is is try to unite people. How do you unite people? In other places, nationalism is one way to do it. You whip up the sphere. Oh, the Greeks, they're violating the Treaty of 1922. Oh, the Greeks, they're overflying the Aegean Islands, even though they belong to Greece, technically. Uh, The problem is that the Turkish people aren't that stupid. Right. So, first of all, the average Turk doesn't want to go to war at this point. They they want a job, and they want to be able to feed their families. That's 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 what the situation is. That's how dire it is in Turkey right now. And it's also, they're looking at the bigger picture. Like, if, if Erdogan were to launch an attack on Greece, it would become... It would just be horrible foreign affairs-wise. It would be disastrous for them. They're they're looking at attacking a NATO country, attacking NATO countries. Now we get into the technical aspects of it. How is NATO going to function here at this point? Right, which of course has never happened It's never happened. So NATO is technically a defensive alliance. So if Greece is the defender, technically it's an Article 5 invocation against the attacker, which happens to be Turkey, which is also a NATO member. So now it becomes a little sticky. And granted, technically, it should be NATO galvanizing around Greece. Technically, it's never going to be that cut and dry. Right. But even if NATO decides like hey, we can't really deal with this, Greece and other allies they can they can lean back on France, Spain, Israel, stuff like that. But again, Erdogan knows that the cost of this is just so bloody high. You know what I mean? He saw what 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 the West did, to, what the West, how the West responded to to the Russian action against Ukraine, and he says I can't. There's no way. You know, Russia can somehow sustain these sanctions. There's no way Turkey is sustaining any sort of sanctions at this point. They would be collapsed at this point, his an economy, and he would lose his government at this point, right now. Then um, there's no shot of winning the election at that point. And also, if o- opening up a front on the on the eastern or western side of the country opens up the eastern side as well, the, the Kurds could take something. It's That's like, right. oh, crap, they're fighting over in the Aegean. and let me take my little piece. The Armenians could be That's like, right. well, you know, we want our peace too. You know, they got other problems. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But yes. it's um, it's you know. Van Hollen is right in as much that Turkey's become a bit of a crappy ally. He's is it's it's been facing the country, Erdogan has faced the country eastward significantly the last number of years. You know, it's it's Yes. They become much more religious. they they're looking at, at making deals and allies in the Middle East. Uh, I think Erdogan is also seeing Turkey as a hindrance more than, than a help. You know, the F-16 deal he was supposed to get fell through a few months ago.
0: Right. He's pretty upset and about they're, that. they're still. very angry about that.
2: Absolutely. They're absolutely very angry about that. And they're actually blaming the Greek prime minister for completely clearing the deal when he visited Washington a few right. months ago. Right. Uh, so they've got that going on. But at this point, there'll be saber rattling and there'll be rhetoric. I can't imagine he'll make the – he's just got too much to lose. It doesn't yeah, make any sense. I agree with you. you know, and if worse comes to worse, you know, NATO and the EU don't need, don't need a war on their eastern flank at no. this point right now. You know, there would be, there would back, Greece would get backed up by its allies. The U.S. would be there like overnight trying to broker a peace. And yes. It's like, you need to stop this right like, yes. now. <laughs>
0: this is not going to work. You know, so I, I can't, I can't see it happening. I gotta and, and I would, I would add too that I think the Greeks could count on immediate help from both the Israelis and the Egyptians. Absolutely. They've Absolutely. been cultivating those relationships for many years, specifically for an event like this. Absolutely.
2: Well, they're also really upset at the, at, at the Turks because they're, they're they're taking a little too much of their piece of the whole natural gas thing around Cyprus. Oh, yeah. You know, and the Turks technically don't really have a claim there, even though they're trying no. to say the claim. And they're they're kind of they're, – they're really annoying the Egyptians and the Israelis right now. And they're right. like, you know, hey, they, they're just looking for an excuse right now. And if everyone's going to give it to them, they'll be happy to oblige, I'm I sure. I think you're
0: right. And he knows that, though. You mentioned a moment ago um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, there was this border skirt last night that resulted in the deaths of 49 Armenian soldiers. The two countries hate each other. They fought a, a very brief war over Nagorno-Karabakh uh, two years ago. The Russians were able to negotiate a ceasefire, but then this flare-up happened yesterday. Uh, what, what is happening here?
2: Why did this happen? There's just a lot of tension between these two countries right now. And, you know, they, they had their their war, I guess, God, I want to say 18 months ago maybe. I got to double yeah. check on that number. I don't know how long ago, well, at least a year ago. Uh, and it it while, was in
0: late uh, 2020.
2: Yes, there mm-hmm. you go. Um, and while there was some territory exchange, Azerbaijan won some territory Correct. from Armenia, you know, there's still a lot of issues that are unresolved. It's an ancient battle that goes, which as, as is apt to be in this part of the world. Yeah. Um, Armenia is upset because, hey, they were upset at their leader at the time because they blamed him for the loss of the war. So they got a new leader and they're just they just want their peace back and they just don't like azerbaijan i think what happened here quite frankly was was you know it sounds like there was it was an exchange of rounds armenians shot some rounds into, into azerbaijan which triggered this thing it's like some jittery 19 year old soldier sitting yeah. at the border got nervous sure. he saw a shadow in the trees and shot at it you know, and sure. so of course the Azerbaijanis like, well, crap, here which, they go. Which
0: actually happens yeah. between India and Pakistan all the time. Absolutely. This, this kind of thing happens.
2: Absolutely. So this one this one one step, you know, one step further. And Russia was quick to come in and broker a ceasefire, like within hours at this yes. point. And, and I get them too because, you know, they're, they're – it's right on their doorstep. And quite frankly, Russia probably like, look, I don't have time for this crap. <laughs> well,
0: and, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, Armenia is a member of of the uh, this defensive uh, alliance along with Russia. So the right. Russians would be compelled to come in on this the side of compelled. Armenia. Yes. And they can't really spare that right now. No, they can't. And it's like to them, you
2: know, Moscow's looked looking at this like, what the hell are you guys doing right now? Like, I've got bigger problems. and yeah. <laughs> I, I can't deal with you. Put a lid on it. You know what That's I mean? That's right. And, and Turkey is – well, Turkey isn't compelled to. The, uh, they would support the Turkic people of Azerbaijan – Uh, But again, it comes down to Erdogan, does he want to start having a war? And if he goes against Azerbaijan, well, you know the Armenians are going to get their peace for sure at that point. So he opens up a whole eastern front. The Kurds could take a piece. So Turkey's probably going to take a big step back and say, you know what? You guys
0: need to figure this out, but not now. (laughs) So let me ask you one more question about Turkey because I think you've just now raised another important point. The Turks are involved in Syria. The Turks are involved in Libya. The Turks are threatening the Cypriots. They're threatening the Greeks in the Aegean. Uh, they're, they're negotiating with the Russians, or at least they've offered to negotiate with the Russians, uh, over Ukraine. Uh, and, and I personally believe that in 2016, Erdogan bit off more than he could chew in his response to the coup attempt. He arrested everybody. I mean, if you just look at the man cockeyed, you're under arrest and charged with treason, mm-hmm. and everybody's getting sentences of 20 to life. Right. Including half of the military leadership and most of the country's professors. a Judiciary, the, the former judiciary, former finance Minister, half, talking, half the yeah. Supreme Court Everybody. went to prison. Yeah. I wonder if there's so much going on for the Turks right now that Erdogan is finally realizing he may have gone too far and. He's not going to be able to win hearts and minds. There's nothing he's going to be able to do between now and mid-2023 when this election takes place that is going to allow him to save himself.
2: I, th- he's not going to be able to save himself, but it's not going to be for any of the reasons we just talked about. It's going to be because of the economy. And when, I, when Yeah, you're probably that's right. It.
0: Again, at the end of the day,
2: you can have supporters up and down the wazoo. Yeah. But if your supporter is hungry and their kid is going to bed hungry yeah. and you can't turn on the heat— All bets are off at that point. Yeah, good point. And and that's what Turkey is right now. And Erdogan sees that. And it's all his own doing. You know, he fired his his, his, his finance minister a while ago, decided to take on monetary policy by himself. Yeah. He's a soccer player. He's not an economist. Terrible mistake. (laughs) You know, so it's it's like.
1: It's an interesting contrast, though, because, you know, Turkey right now, in terms of geopolitics, is really throwing its weight around pretty successfully. It's a player. Playing all sides Mm -hmm. and also managing to, like, playing all sides, using its leverage to get concessions that it wants and also positioning itself as the trusted negotiator between Russia and Ukraine. And it is a, a very big contrast between its performance on the global stage and its performance uh, at home, right? Yeah. You, you see a lot more. We talk a lot more about it's Turkey. It's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. We talk a lot more about how how they are, uh, you know, how they are acting as a global player versus how Turkish people are, are managing. And it, yeah, you, you wonder yeah. how much of who, who? If to some extent, this is a show, right? Because he can't salvage Erdogan can't salvage the economy, so maybe he'll try and do the statesman thing as much as he possibly can.
2: Right, and doing the statesman thing as a negotiator and as a regional power and as would make sense. Mm-hmm. And that's if I was Erdogan, that's what I would stop and then focus internally and try to get that problem fixed. I've got about, when's the election there? About 10 months away, next yeah. June, I believe it is. Yes. So I've got about a year and I've got a little less than a year to figure this thing out. And that's what I would focus on a thousand percent right now. And he's not doing that. He's taking the other approach like, no, screw it. We're just going to make enemies everywhere. And the Turkish people are going to come behind me and, Empty stomachs are going to vote for me. No, Be- no, they're because, not.
0: because it's happened in the past. It has. But it's different this time. It's different it's now. It's worse. It's not the it's same It's dragged population. on longer. It's
2: dragged on longer, mm-hmm. and people have access to information that they didn't have before. This yeah. is one thing governments are facing in the last 10 years. The advent of the internet and information being flowed everywhere has made made the message very difficult to control at this point. You know what I mean? And I don't know what the status of the – how much control they have over, over the internet in Turkey. I don't know that. But if I can get access to – internet and see news from western europe and see news from asia you know i get a pretty good idea of what's going on in the world and i see that you know the kid in france or the guy in greece is living pretty well yeah, but i'm not right. and why because yeah. i'm in a bigger country than a lot of these people the economy is certainly as strong but yet i get the raw end of the
0: deal so what's going on here right tony uh president putin is going to meet with xi jinping Probably on Thursday in Samarkand. The media have been looking forward to this meeting for weeks. Uh, they've been writing about it uh, with regularity. What do you think we should expect to come out of this meeting? Everybody believes that it's going to be substantive, even though it's on the sidelines uh, of the uh, the Shanghai, uh, uh, whatever it's called. Um, do you think it's going to be substantive? Do you Anytime. have any idea?
2: Anytime the leaders of the two, one of the two biggest countries in the world meet, or some of the two largest countries in the world meet, is going to be substantive. Uh, this is substantive in as much as it's the first time they are meeting since Russia began its operation. That's Ukraine. right. Um, and China, well, hasn't come out completely in support of – the Putin regime and what they're doing with, with, with Ukraine, they haven't come out against it either. And they have become one of the one of Russia's biggest energy customers right now. So they're offsetting the Western sanctions. And in fact,
0: rate. I think that's supposed to be the, the main topic of conversation is a new pipeline that would go from Russia to China.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, and the Chinese are always looking for a deal. You know what I mean? Always. And then the Russians are more than happy to give them one right now because, you know, quite frankly, they need the sales, you know, and it's Coming out of the uh, out of out of out of the East, that's gonna be is it's you know, it's it's an important meeting at the end of the day. Both countries are are united in, in the philosophy of that Western influence has become too big in yes. the world. And they want to both provide an alternative to Western influence. And that's what they're that's what they that's what this alliance really is prefaced on. So the alliance is is, is all right, and, and China and Russia will work together economically, politically, even militarily to a degree. I don't expect to see Russian troops in Ukraine. I don't expect to see no. uh sorry, no. don't expect to see Chinese troops in Ukraine, don't expect no. to see Russian troops in Taiwan. Right. But one of the one of the meeting meeting will be: Look, if you kind of help me out politically with Ukraine, I'll help you out politically with Taiwan. And I think that's going to be something that comes out of it as well. There's you know? no
0: downside to something like that.
2: There really isn't. The only downside is actually is they're looking at. And it's not really even a, even a downside. It's a question of how to, how to how to work how to work around this thing. They both want influence. Both China and Russia want influence in Central Asia. You know, China because it's it's their major nodes for the Belt and Road Initiative. It's big trade routes that connect Europe to China through 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 Central Asia. Russia wants this because they've always been a political and economic player in this part of the world, and they want to keep that. So the problem here is, though, that aside from what Russia wants, what China wants, the stands want their own thing. And they want neither China nor Russia <laughs> at this point. Yeah. They're building relations with Southern Asia. They're building relations with the Arab world. So right. that's going to be part of the conversation as well. And I think both countries, both China and Russia, will, will say to each other, look, I'll be, I'll help you as much as I can. Just don't move the influence needle one way or the other. Yes, and I think this will be the biggest part of that meeting right there: the economy and who's going to control, really, who's going to control, who's going to have the influence over Central Asia, and how.
0: I think you're right on. Finally, um, Tony Blinken is in Mexico City today, and nobody seems to be paying very much attention to this trip. We're told that it's uh, that the reason for the trip is severalfold: it's to fix um, a, a dispute with Mexico over energy policy, uh, to discuss migration, of course, and uh, and. To initiate trade talks, what are you hearing? Well, this is a follow-up from a meeting that uh, Obrador
2: had with Biden back in July, and yeah, officially this is the conversation: migration and the communists and and that. Personally, I think it's about lithium. I think it's that Mexico discovered Ah. the biggest lithium mine in the world. They did, and and Amlo went went ahead there and nationalized it. And there was American, Canadians, and European mining companies that wanted a piece of this action, and he threw them all out. So now the U.S. is saying, well, hold on. Mexico, you were going against the spirit of USPACA, the U.S.-Canada-Mexico Free Trade Agreement. Uh, and Mexico's like, well, no, it's my mind to do what the hell I want with it at this point. So, you know, the U.S. Wants, wants, wants mining companies in the U.S. want a piece of this money. Lithium is a big deal, right? It's sure. becoming a bigger deal. It's, it's powering batteries that powers electric cars. Mm-hmm. In about 30 years, it's going to be the new oil. Yes. So it's going to be – it's huge. And, and if a if country, country like Mexico says, well, no, I'm not going to share it. but I'll share it on my terms. But, I you know, that's, that's a problem. That's why Blinken is there. That's why I think he's there, at least, anyway. And I don't know for a fact. No one has told me this is what's happening. But this is about me putting two and two together.
1: That, that makes sense. We also know. got very angry at Mexico uh, making moves to refine more of its own oil, yes. buying these refineries in, in Texas. How dare right. they? How dare absolutely. they not let us refine their oil and sell it back to them at a higher cost? Well, yes, it's absolutely and Th- funny you mentioned true. that
2: because there's, there's a couple of U.S. senators, and I didn't write their names down when I read when I read this little piece of it, who are saying that Mexico's current stance on energy policy uh, is, is detrimental to U.S. investment in Mexico, which has been a historical positive between the two countries. Well, Mexico doesn't seem to think so. It seems like yeah. – so it's uh, you know, they're 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 kind of you know circling their own wagons and and uh, US
0: is not happy about that. You know, just as an interesting aside, too, these these refineries that we have in Texas are built specifically to refine very dirty, high sulfur content oil. It's the kind of oil that comes from Venezuela. It's among the dirtiest oil in the world. The the purest, cleanest is Libyan oil. It almost doesn't need refinery, refining. It's so clean. Um but we're the only ones who can refine this really heavily sulf- uh, sulfuric oil. Um, as a result, we haven't upgraded these refineries in two generations because there's nowhere else for anybody to go. Well, now there's going to be now someplace there, else like for them to go. might be an alternative go. right now. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Yeah and we're worried about
2: it. And you know that's that's one of, I think it might not be the only reason Blinken is in Mexico City today but it's one of the reasons.
1: No, lithium is a story. Lithium is a a story to watch absolutely. You bet yep. it is. 100% 100%.
0: Tony Alexiu, thanks for joining us Thank here in the studio. Thank you for having me again, Tony, guys, Really appreciate it. Tony's a principal at the Minotaur Group. That's a Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm that specializes in geopolitical risk and homeland security consultancy. Always great to have you. Always fun to be here with you guys. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for doing it. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witty. The Justice Department this week issued 40 separate subpoenas and seized the phones of two top Trump aides in its investigation into the January 6th riot. The seizure of the phones, coupled with the widening effort to obtain information from those around Trump immediately after the 2020 election, represents some of the most aggressive steps. The Department of Justice has taken thus far in its January 6th investigation. Federal agents seized the cell phones of Boris Epstein, one of Trump's in-house counsels, and Mike Roman, a 2020 Trump campaign aide who was director of Election Day Operations. We're joined from Washington by Bruce Fine. He's a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and is one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. Welcome back, Bruce. No, thanks for inviting me. Bruce, uh, thanks for joining us. And let's start with these subpoenas. 40 subpoenas sounds like a huge number. And according to the New York Times, it covers dozens of Trump aides and White House officials. Is this a phishing expedition or is the Justice Department's case specific enough
3: that they know what they're
0: looking for and that 40 people now have to give up documents?
3: I think that the reason why the number is so large is because uh, President Trump uh, before and after his election, uh, was so unprecedentedly contemptuous of the law. Indeed, his whole life is nothing but contempt for the law and uh, scruples. Mm-hmm. So you have a very large number. Yes, it is unprecedented. Uh, I lived through Watergate, and though the numbers were high, it never got to that level. But wow. virtually everything that Trump did, was uh, at least close to the line, if not over the line, of lawlessness. That's why his former national security advisor, John Bolton, who I knew and still know, characterized the the White House as a uh, obstruction of justice was a way of life. Mm-hmm. It Actually, turned into a crime scene during the 2020 election when the uh, <clears throat> the law, it's called the Hatch Act, against enlisting federal resources to aid a Political campaign was flouted daily during the Republican National Convention, when uh, events were hosted at the White House to promote the re-election of President Trump. So yes, it is very wide-ranging. Yes, the crimes are you would call a very wide spectrum, going from the January 6th insurrection to fraud and raising money to pursue uh, hopeless uh, concocted lawsuits after the election um, to the uh, proposals to get fake electors at states uh, to try to challenge the validly elected and certified electors. Uh, and it involved a lot of people because uh, virtually everyone was in, implicated in some way or other mm-hmm. within uh, arm's length of President Trump. That's why we've had during the January 6th uh, uh, committee hearings, uh, statements that there was a team called Trump normal <laughs> and a team called Trump crazy. <laughs> and unfortunately, the Trump normals were small and minuscule in comparison to the Trump crazies. And that's why you have this uh, very, very large number of subpoenas.
0: It seems to be a pretty big deal, Bruce, to seize an attorney's cell phone, along with the cell phone of a former president's top campaign aide. What do you think the DOJ is looking for on these phones and how do they protect attorney client privilege?
3: Well, attorney client privilege, first of all, does not apply to plans to violate the law. Mm. That's why, for example, John Eastman's communications with President Trump have been largely uh, unprotected by attorney-client privilege because the judge found, by a preponderance of the evidence, uh, they were communications intending to commit fraud against the United States and to obstruct a congressional proceeding. So that's how he, they, the privilege simply doesn't apply uh, to these efforts, which I believe uh, are suspected of uh, displaying communications in furtherance of the effort, illegally stopped the uh, the peaceful transfer of presidential power to Joe Biden in a variety of forms in a variety of ways. Uh, and that's why uh, they are subpoenaing the, uh, the cell phones, documents of lawyers. Remember, John Eastman was one of his most prominent lawyers, and right. he's been a primary target.
0: Bruce, these subpoenas and phone seizures have nothing to do with the classified information that Trump is accused of keeping at Mar-a-Lago, and it has nothing to do with the request for the special master. What are you able to discern from this latest information? This this seems to be a completely different uh, path of investigation. What do you think the DOJ investigators are after here?
3: Well, let me first uh, amplify from what you've said. The problem that Mr. Trump has in Mar-a-Lago is not whether the Documents were classified or not. Uh, The criminal laws that were under investigation, as identified in the search warrant, do not turn on the presence or absence of classified information. Any information that could be damaging to the national security of the United States, whether or not it was classified, is the focus. But putting that aside, I do think that it seems to me, and this is from documents in the public domain, that the new focus is on. Uh, Trump's probably uh, fraudulent fundraising efforts uh, to urge people to contribute huge sums uh, in pursuing lawsuits that were known to be frivolous, uh, had no chance of success, mm. and were simply fraudulent fundraising mechanisms. Uh, we do have situations where some who have contributed large sums, I think one in Texas up to $2 million, wants his money back. There are literally over 60 lawsuits involved, and virtually every one but one small one relating to access to looking at the counting of the votes while they were ongoing uh, was a spectacular failure. And indeed, many have resulted in sanctions against Trump's attorneys for pursuing cases with Mm -hmm. doing due diligence regarding representation of facts that were false or making utterly ridiculous legal arguments. So there are huge sums involved in this fundraising effort, and remember, these are the same people who have been charged, like Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a wall fraud, uh, raising staggering amounts of money to so-called build a wall with <laughs> private resources with uh, Mexico, and then pocketing a huge sum for themselves, right? Saying that they were all doing this on a charitable basis. This is not surprising. Uh, Mr. Trump is known for caring only about you know money and narcissism and nothing else uh, the idea that he would ever have a charitable uh, non uh, narcissistic impulse is ridiculous he's got 70 years of proof that it's not going to happen so anyway that's where i think the new target is on the uh, the fraudulent fundraising for and and diverting funds for personal use uh, by uh, misrepresenting what in fact was in train
0: You've been outspoken, I should say, in your belief that former Vice President Pence should be subpoenaed to testify before the January 6th committee. The committee hasn't done that yet, but Representative Jamie Raskin called it a possibility last week. Why do you think the committee hasn't yet demanded that Vice President Pence testify?
3: I think we're dealing with committee members and the institution of Congress uh, has accumulated a personality of timidity. Uh, For long years, because they're worried about the so called precedent. Well, what happens is Camilla Harris or they subpoena Vice President Pence, then it could happen to their vice president. I think it's a disgusting attitude to have. Their obligation is to follow the law wherever it goes. The Supreme Court has affirmed on countless occasions the law has a right to every man's evidence, including the vice president's evidence. We've had vice presidents testify before, Shyler Koufax, who was a vice president under. U.S. grant. Uh, we've had vice presidents who have been prosecuted for tax evasion like uh, Spiro Agnew. Uh, so I just think it's an example. Oh, wow. You know, we're so polarized. Uh, if we do Pence, then what's going to happen? You know, if uh, if we have a vice president who leaves office and then we subpoena them, well, how about just having vice presidents don't worry about being subpoenaed because they have nothing they have to be embarrassed about. How about that being the remedy? But anyway that's the only conclusion I can draw because it's not as though the vice president is a marginal character in this equation. Mm-hmm. Um he is was is known to have had numerous maybe half dozen or a dozen single encounters with Trump where he was harassing browbeating him into not counting the electoral votes as he's obligated to do under the 12th amendment on January 6th. So he is what I call the you know the smoking gun in this whole equation at least regarding the January 6th, uh, illegalities, Uh, it's obviously a crime to try to compel somebody not to uh, follow their duties to uh, uh, execute the laws under the Constitution, which is obviously what Trump was trying to do. So that's all I can say is is why. And and the other thing is, I don't see why uh, there's any incentive for Mike Pence to resist the subpoena. Right. He has his own presidential ambitions. The president has never apologized for being silent while well, his crowd was chanting, hang Mike Pence, trying to kill him, murder him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is his loyalty to Mr. Trump? He certainly doesn't have any that's required as a matter of, 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 of the past. Um, and all I can think of, he's very weak or he's maneuvering. He, doesn't, he really is hoping for a campaign in 2028 when, when Trump is not likely to be around. Uh, And he doesn't want to alienate Trump's voters. Anyway, it's a a sorry mess, uh, to be candid, Uh, having started our our country with the likes of Washington and Adams and Jefferson and James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, to see the current crowd we have here. My God, the dissent is truly stunning.
0: (laughs) The January 6th committee's investigation is running parallel to the Justice Department's investigation. We know that DOJ has asked the committee for witness transcripts from private interviews, not the ones that we've seen on TV, but the ones that committee investigators are doing behind closed doors. Do you think that anything will come out of the committee's work? uh, Or is what the committee doing more for public relations? Do you think DOJ will be able to use some of those interview transcripts in in their own criminal cases?
3: Well, they should. Obviously, we have to speculate because we don't see the transcripts. This is not at all irregular, um, John. Uh, it water- the Watergate Committee, you know, ran. The Urban Committee began before the grand jury, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and surely the Watergate Committee transcripts the John Dean testimony surely was relevant to the Watergate cover-up trial and Nixon's ultimate resignation. Uh, and also, um, you perhaps, were more uh, elderly, uh, and I was involved in the Iran-Contra investigation. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, The Joint Congressional Committee investigating and gathering records and testimony at the same time that Lawrence Walsh was pursuing uh, alleged uh, violations of law, including the Boland Amendment. And so the criminal trials were going on almost contemporaneously with some of the hearings. Uh, So there's nothing uh, wrongful about it. Uh, You know, how decisive the uh, uh, the information is depends upon, you know, the skill and the talents of the house investigators. There are no lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I can tell you that there's a huge range of talent, uh, among the legal community. And I assume that's probably true up on Capitol Hill. That's my experience. Some lawyers are gifted and seasoned. Others are not. So it's, uh, I think it's a little, uh, too early to know how important or critical, uh, the documentation is, but remember the department of justice can call these witnesses again, there's no protection against being Oh, good point and demanded it to be deposed by both Congress and the executive branch. Uh, you got to do both.
0: Do you foresee any problems uh, similar to the problem we saw with Oliver North during the Iran-Contra hearings, where he was granted immunity to testify before uh, Congress, and then the Justice Department stepped in and charged him with a with a felony? I remember his pension was briefly confiscated, and he argued that— that nothing he said before Congress could be used against him in a criminal case. He ended up winning that suit. Do you foresee any problems like that coming out of these
3: hearings? Um, my recollection is um, the the narrative may be a little bit um, misplaced. Uh, in Ollie North's case, first of all, the the Congress did grant him immunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has been no grant of immunity to anyone. Uh huh. In, in in this case, secondly. Uh, the reason why um, the 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 issue, and he was able to overturn his conviction by Lawrence Walsh on appeal, was because some of the attorneys uh, wrongfully listened to some of Ollie Norr's testimony. Uh, so it right. was enabled them to uh, tailor some of the questions and interrogation of witnesses based upon the immunized testimony they heard. And so it was tainted for that reason. Walsh tried to establish a Chinese wall. But you know it's hard in Washington D.C. to do that effectively. Mm-hmm. That was what caused the problem. If there had been no, if there had been an effective shield in the prosecution team from anything Ollie North said, uh, his prosecution would not have been overturned on appeal. I'm not all sure that the immunity had anything to do with Ollie North's pension. I see, Bruce. You and
0: I have talked about the possibility of indicting a former president politically. It's not as hard as many people think, is it? The the Justice Department that you were a part of in the 1970s was fully prepared to indict Richard Nixon. Based on what we know so far, do you think an indictment um, is in Donald Trump's future? And if so, uh, what do you think it likely is, uh, is to be? No, I do think
3: an indictment is likely. It's overwhelmingly likely in, in my mind. And I think for political purposes, it's likely to focus on what I think is the lesser crimes of what transpired, including obstruction of justice uh, at Mar-a-Lago with regard to presidential documents that he traipsed off with. Uh, there are clearly lies told to the department about whether or not uh, all of the uh, uh, the, the boxes uh, in the House had had been uh, 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 reviewed and he had returned all classified documents. And it was not just one or two they overlooked. There were literally hundreds. Mm-hmm. They weren't all in boxes. They were scattered hither and yon everywhere. So there's clearly, I think there's jeopardy, but not just to the lawyers, uh, including Christina Bob, who seems to have been among others who certified under oath that, yes, they had revealed all of the classified documents and returned them when there are literally hundreds remaining, but President Trump himself. Uh, The idea that you have mavericks out of President Trump's uh, eyesight seems to me ridiculous. Uh, No one would have done anything. He's the client. They wouldn't have made that representation unless uh, Donald Trump told them to. Now, why do I think these are like crimes likely to be prosecuted? It's because I think they're less politically divisive than the January 6th crimes mm-hmm. that all brings up mm-hmm. stop the steal And anyway, uh, a lot of uh, yeah. more passion involved in that. than hey, these are national security problems that affect everybody equally. It's not a Republican and Democrat kind of issue. Uh, these cases have been prosecuted before. Uh, yeah. and the only reason why presidents haven't been, because after the presidential records act, nobody.
0: Tra- yeah, nobody. That, that's right. They protect those kinds of records. I apologize that we're out of time. That was the voice of Bruce Fine. He's a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of our country's leading constitutional scholars. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have another hour for you.
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to talk now about today's news on inflation, this week's news on what's going on in terms of U.S. household wealth, uh, what's been happening with child poverty over the last couple of decades, and is it something we should actually be pretty happy about, and uh, maybe a little bit of what's going on between Joe Manchin. The center of the Democratic Party and the progressives as they continue to fight over the Mountain Valley pipeline and these permitting reforms that Manchin was apparently promised to get his sign off on the Inflation Reduction Act. We'll see if we have time for that because there's a lot of economic news to get into before that. Joining us for it. Is Robert Hockett. He's Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. He's the Senior Counsel at Westwood Capital, and he's a Fellow of the Century Foundation. Robert, great to have you here again.
4: Hey, guys. Great to be with you again. Thanks so much.
1: Let's talk about inflation. Uh, we uh, learned today. Sure.
4: <laughs> yeah,
1: let's talk about a, a new topic to us, inflation. Is it transitory?
4: <laughs> uh, the gift the, that keeps on giving.
1: Right. <laughs> So the consumer price index rose by 8.3% in August. That was a slightly slower rate of increase than July's 8.5% and June's 9.1%. But of course, this is still increasing and it's still higher than the Biden administration would have liked. The core CPI, which excludes more volatile energy and food prices, increased more than it had in June and July by 6.3%. This is something the Wall Street Journal tells me is a signal that price pressures across the board remain intense. Uh, Gas prices are a bright spot for consumers. Gas prices have dropped a lot, Um, but uh, at least one expert the Wall Street Journal spoke to said, overall, inflationary dynamics are improving and moving in the right direction, but they're still running way too hot for comfort, either for individuals and businesses or the Fed. And so my question is, You know, the the Fed has been saying for weeks now that their biggest fear is easing up on the brakes too soon. So I'm going to guess that we will see more rate increases this month. So I, I wanted to ask what you predict in terms of rate increases and also, you know, what these economic indicators say to you.
4: Yeah, so I think maybe a couple things worth highlighting. Uh, The the first is that the Fed had already signaled last week that it'll probably be raising rates by another uh, 75 basis points at its next uh, meeting, even before uh, this morning's news. And so that means, in other words, that they were planning on continuing to sort of inch the rates up. Even when the forecasts were to the effect that we would see some cooling uh, in inflation, uh, or maybe I should say when the forecasts were that we would see more cooling than in fact we have seen. Uh, second thing worth noting is that we have nevertheless still seen cooling. Remember, they were forecasting uh, around 8% um, uh, in the sort of aggregate CPI. Non-core, in other words, not just the core CPI or non-core CPI, but the aggregate CPI, they were forecasting around eight percent instead of uh, last time's eight point six, uh, and instead it's about eight point three. So it's about half as much better as they were expecting. Um, I think what that means is that this, the, the 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 sort of story is in in some sense or in some ways. Still kind of good news on this score, but just not quite as good as was uh, being expected. And since the Fed was planning on continuing to inch the rates up, even when they were expecting better news than today, I suppose that today means that they will indeed probably follow through on that.
5: So, you know, it is sort of,
1: it's starting to have the effect they want it to have, right? Which is to (laughs) slow the rate of increase here of, uh, of inflation. Um, Are we going to start to see some of these other effects that are that are necessarily part of this, which means increases in unemployment, for example?
4: I think that it really depends on what we do alongside uh, pursuing the particular, you know, the kind of monetary tightening that we see right now. As you guys know from our previous conversations, I'm not a big fan (laughs) of Powell's uh, sort of paranoia about continuing inflation or about the continued uh, rate hikes. And I'm especially uh, a non-fan of those who are calling for much more drastic measures. You know, people like uh, senior Larry Summers um, and then junior Larry Summers, that is to say Jason Furman, Mm -hmm. Talking about you know ten percent unemployment rates for a couple of years or six point five or seven percent rates mm-hmm. for five or six years, which of course means a twenty percent black unemployment rate or a fifteen percent black unemployment rate just mm-hmm. to get those uh, numbers down. I'm not a fan of any of that stuff, and I think it's it's a bad idea in general um, for various reasons that we've talked about. That being said, I think that any sort of suppressive effect that monetary tightening might have can be counteracted by you know real bold action on the fiscal policy side and some of the new legislation that has recently been passed at least at least opens the door to some of that bolder action on the fiscal policy side, which as you guys know from our previous conversations, I think if properly used can really ramp up the production of goods and services of the kind that absorb money out there so that you can basically deal with the so-called too much money chasing too few goods problem mm-hmm. from the good Side of the equation instead of the money side of the equation.
1: I assume you're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. Any anything else out there that you think indicates that maybe we will see some kind of uh, fiscal policy that will try to address this and not just monetary tightening?
4: Yeah, I'm I'm actually thinking of several recent pieces of legislation. Essentially, the ones that um, some of the Democrats have been sort of crowing about as great victories, which in one sense they are. You know, relative to what we've had um, in in more recent years but which, on the other hand, of course, are rather more modest than what we were originally hoping for. So the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, on the one hand, does um, look to you know, bid fair, if used properly, um, to ramp up production of all sorts of greenification technolo- or greenifying technologies, EV production, battery production, things of that sort. Um, the Infrastructure uh, uh, Bill or Act um, also uh, should sort of loosen up supply chain uh, or transport networks so as to sort of loosen up the supply chain congestion that we've had of late, again, if they do this smartly and and, and rapidly. Um, And then, of course, the CHIPS Act uh, ought to ramp up the production of uh, semiconductors or microchips uh, quite quickly, again, if used well. And when you consider how ubiquitous the use of semiconductors in just about all modern consumer goods, household goods, durable goods, and the like um, is, um, that also tells you that we'll probably see a massive uptick in production uh, in the coming uh, uh, year or two if these things are sort of, again, uh, uh implemented expeditiously
1: which is always an if but
4: but you know yeah. at least
1: they're out there to be implemented and not still to be uh, debated over i wanted to ask oh, also okay. uh, you know we have seen the european central bank sort of do, doing the same uh, following the same monetary policy as as uh, the federal reserve raising interest rates promising more rate, uh interest rate increases and i wonder if mm-hmm. you know looking at europe you see the same situation because it seems like uh Europe is going to have to do less work to push itself into a recession and get inflation down and I, I, I you know as again a total uh, a novice economy watcher I'm kind of curious because I feel like well you're going to get there without very much help why why even bother
4: yeah, yeah. um we uh, yeah that's a really good point a really important one to stress um I guess there are a couple things we can sort of say about that that might be you know kind of new and helpful I mean one is um that there does seem to be a kind of Uh, intensification of a process has been underway for a while that you might think of as a kind of monetary policy convergence and even a a, a fiscal policy convergence as well. That is to say that, you know, anytime some newfangled form of monetary policy is announced here in the U.S., be it on the expansionary side or on the contractionary side, it seems now that it's almost immediately thereafter that the same thing happens over at the ECB over in in Europe. Um, Interestingly, the Bank of Japan, the BOJ, was really the the pioneer I think on both sides of, of this equation and, and, and in other words, a lot of the innovations that the Fed has uh, taken were kind of pioneered first by the BOj which accordingly i don 't think gets quite enough credit but so there's been a tendency for the you know the Fed to kind of follow the BOJ and then for the ECB to kind of follow the Fed but maybe because the u s is the eight hundred pound gorilla, everybody sort of focuses on the Fed as the sort of leader but what you see happening in Europe then um, right now at least on the monetary policy side is it it's again kind of moving in more or less lockstep uh, with the u s which has been uh, the norm or the pattern of late but what's sort of interesting is it's doing that on the contractionary side now whereas before the innovation was always happening on the expansionary side um moving over to fiscal policy and basically what I think of as sort of productive improvements or productive um, uh, ramp ups or the like there's going to be a bit of a lag I think um, on the part of Europe's uh, ramping up its productivity essentially because it was more immediately vulnerable, of course, to energy supply um, uh, disruptions as a result of the war just to the east. Um, And so in the short run, I think it's going to be harder for them to make the kind of adjustments uh, that the U.S. is sort of trying to make now. On the other hand, in the longer term, this could end up enabling Europe to sort of leapfrog ahead of the U.S. in certain ways. They seem now to feel more acutely than they did before and certainly more acutely than Mm -hmm. we're feeling the absolutely imperative character of the project of getting off of fossil fuels and moving to renewables. Um, So while they're way behind where they need to be, um, they have probably more urgent incentive to get to where they need to be um, than than we have even. And hence, they might well get there sooner than we, even if it's going to take a while.
1: I also wanted to ask about um, this news about U.S. household wealth. U.S. household wealth declined for the second quarter in a row, dropping to uh, one point. Oh, sorry, one hundred and forty-three point eight trillion, which is a meaningless figure to me. Uh, you know, obviously a conglomerate <laughs> there. Uh, yeah. And a, but I mean, I guess that's all of our wealth piled together, right? Of all the U.S. households, and a, a Reuters story vaguely yeah. explains this as a yeah. a bear market in stocks outweighing gains in real estate values. But what is interesting is that. Mm-hmm. This is the uh, it's a, it's a decline that follows a, a decline. It's a bigger decline mm-hmm. than the drop that we saw in the first quarter. It leaves U.S. household wealth at mm-hmm. its lowest level in a year. And I presume this is the kind of I mean, you know, we live in a country of such extraordinary economic inequality that you know lumped mm-hmm. together these mm-hmm. measures of wealth are, are are sort of weird to understand. But like again, if we if we are heading into mm-hmm. a period of um, Recession and unemployment, uh, you would think that households will want to have some level of savings to manage that. And so I wonder, you know, Mm -hmm. combined with the other economic indicators we've seen, uh, how should we how should we take this news?
4: Yeah, I think maybe a couple of things really deserve focus here. The first is I think it's really important um, that you noted the um, the presence of inequality when it comes to wealth and wealth distribution uh, here in the U.S. in particular. Um, the term household wealth as sort of bandied about by, you know, entities like the Wall Street Journal and other sort of cheerleaders for Wall Street and the like is somewhat euphemistic because it does, as you suggested, kind of lump together all of the components of so-called net worth, including stock portfolios on the one hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, residential real estate on the other. Now, if we remember that the overwhelmingly greater part of Americans do not have significant stock portfolio wealth mm-hmm. um, to the point where basically the principal asset by far uh, owned by middle class Americans is their mm-hmm. housing their net worth positions or their wealth positions don't look as bad as the reports um, sort of suggest because really those sort of losses are concentrated more toward the top of the distribution where, again, stock portfolio wealth, financial asset type wealth is, is more important. So in effect, what you have is the Wall Street Journal sort of playing a violin for mm-hmm. rich people, but pretending like that's mm-hmm. a playing of the violin for ordinary middle class. people. Um, That being said, it is worth noting, nevertheless, that yes, the real estate peak was reached a while back and prices seem to be coming down uh, gradually now. And then, as you suggested, savings are uh, gradually depleting. Uh, And I think one of the reasons that savings are beginning to deplete I guess there's sort of two, right, First, those tiny little checks that the Republicans are upset with um, having been, you know, with their having been sent to us uh, back in February and March of 2021 have long since disappeared. Mm-hmm. So the people have to dip into savings again if they're going to spend. Uh, second, of course, with the reopening of society, so to speak, post-COVID, there is more, you know, outside exp- uh, Expenditure going on, people are have, are spending more now that they're no longer just sort of hiding out in their homes, and then finally, thirdly, of course, um, the consumer price inflation takes a little bit of a bite out of um, out of their spending power, uh, and so all of that together does put some downward pressure on household wealth. Um, in, in, in some, then what I would sort of suggest is that if journals are going to tell us about, you know, how, you know, household wealth rising or falling, it would be really helpful if they would disaggregate by decile or quintile. So we could kind of see the magnitude of the changes, be they positive or negative, um, you know, according to, you know, kind of where we are on the, on the wealth ladder or income ladder, maybe one final point here, uh, to know really quickly is, Wealth, as currently measured, is a somewhat problematic indicator anyway, partly because of the role that uh, stock portfolio, wealth or asset port- financial asset portfolio wealth plays in it. because as we know, right, that kind of wealth tends to fluctuate rather rapidly with the ups and downs of the securities markets. Um, and again, I suggest that for most people, that means less, even in the short run but it especially means little uh, in the long run.
1: I'm so glad you made that point. It's really difficult to, you know, to talk about anything like in, in, in aggregate in the United States, because again, the disparities are mm-hmm. so huge. And so, yeah, I think yeah. Uh, it, it's useful mm-hmm. to to be able to look at this and go, well, this is sort of a, like a little bit of a measure of what uh, the stock market's doing and how how well wealthy people's stock portfolios are doing. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's hard to gain anything from, you know, it really forces people to uh, to remember the difference between average and median here when you're looking at anything That's about right. like wages or savings you know. or, or home prices or whatever, um, because the, ex- yeah, the know, extremes warp things so
4: much. They do. And I've got a project underway, this connection that I think really kind of speaks to the the, the real central issue here. And that is, you know, we always see people talking about growth rates of various national economies, you know, how rapidly did U.S. GDP grow or whatever. And they're always talking about the aggregates. And if you look at that, then people will say, oh, gosh, you know, the U.S. economy grows more rapidly than does the French economy because they're socialists over there or whatever Mm -hmm. they're said to be. Um, But I've noticed um, in looking at lots of different countries, if you actually divide up their GDP into quintiles, you know, look at the you know, growth in incomes for the bottom one-fifth, then the next one-fifth, then the middle one-fifth, and so on, it turns out that if you're you know, outside of the top decile in France, GDP growth for you as a French citizen is much higher on an, ag- on an annual basis than it is if you're an american below the you know the, the sort of top decile and this is the case sort of across the board it seems like in every so-called developed country in the world if you're not in the very top tier you actually are seeing a growth rate in your income in that and your you know, kind of as a rough proxy for your material standard of living significantly higher than you are if you're an American outside of that top decile. And yet all these stats that they report to us are always looking at the aggregate, which, you know, is telling you Bill Gates is doing a lot better this year than last year. Hurrah. Right. Well, you know, I'm not sure that I'm so heroic about that. you know, nothing against Bill Gates, at least in this context, but he's not America, you know?
1: no, absolutely, <laughs> yes, absolutely not. And yeah, I don't need to I, we don't need to celebrate him g- gaining anymore. That's fine. He's got plenty um the last story, yeah, I, he's
4: he, he's well figured.
1: and got, got, increasingly has a lot of land, uh, which is a story yeah. that we've talked about a, a couple <laughs> of times on this show in the past. um, the other story I really wanted to ask you about is this. New York Times story from earlier this week about a a drop in child poverty over uh, the last couple of decades. And the essence of the story is that, Mm -hmm. according to a new analysis by this organization, Child Trends, child poverty has fallen 59 percent since 1993. It has fallen on every front across the board in, ev- you know, across racial categories uh, among immigrant families and non-immigrant families, families with one parent, families with two parent, deep poverty has also uh, really declined. Um, and so it looks like a really good story that's happened over a long period of time. I just also don't, I, I have questions because I, I, you know, anytime we talk about poverty in the United States, I just feel as though our thresholds for poverty and our definitions for poverty are so, um, low, right. That they don't do a very good job of capturing need. And, uh, you know, I mean, post pandemic, we, I do feel like we're, I, I walk around Washington DC and I don't see a society where, you know, all boats are rising. Right. I see, I see a lot of need and I see a lot of plenty. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on this because it would be great to see the the other, um, Theme of this story is that the reason for this is government intervention, a sort of expanded social safety net that occurred around the same time as uh, Bill Clinton's welfare reform. Uh, and so you know it says this doesn't mm-hmm. we don't think this has to do with welfare reform this has to do with you know expanding things like the earned income tax credit uh, support for different kinds of support specifically mm-hmm. for families with children and that this is the result and so my first question is just you know l- looking at the the data here how, how much is genuine improvement in the well-being of of children and is any of this you mm-hmm. know uh, a, a mismatch of I guess uh the real buying power of, of families uh, and that kind of thing.
4: Yeah, so I don't I don't want to sound too Manichaean here, but once again, I think there's sort of a bright side of the story and then a somewhat darker side of this story, right? Um, on, on the bright side, um, there do appear to have been some significant gains or some significant progress made Um Uh, thanks precisely to things like the EITC or the, um, uh, I'm sorry, the Earned Income Tax Credit uh, on the one hand and the Affordable Care Act and hence the extension of of health insurance. uh, On the other hand, those seem to have been actual, you know, legitimate gains, even if not as as, as great of gains as uh, sometimes are touted. And this is sort of part of the very reason um, that progressives in Congress for some time now have been pushing for continuation of and further expansion of both the EITC and Affordable Care Act type uh, supports, right? That's the kind of brighter side of the ledger that, again, there is some, I think, legitimacy or reality to. On the darker side, uh, however, it seems to me there are a couple of reasons to be, you know, certainly reasons not to be uh, self-satisfied or complacent and reasons also to be a little bit skeptical and and worried. One is that um, you guys um, might know, um, I was a student at the time, and I remember a prof of mine would always point this out in a class that I was taking, and that might be why I noticed it, but it seems to have been a central strategy uh, of the Clinton administration and has been uh, repeated by other administrations since to sort of focus on children as kind of you know almost literal poster children for various things that they wanted to uh, accomplish. They figured even you know kind of right winger types or even Simon Legree types will find it harder to argue against sort of social safety net measures that the focus is on children because children appear to be innocent and they can't be di- they can't be called simply lazy or, um, you know, socialists or whatever. Um, and so, you know, there was a real focus. If you go back and look at old Clinton speeches and press conferences and the like back in the nineties, everything's always about children. And this was sort of repeated by, of course, the Bush administration talking about, you know, no child left behind and so on and so forth. Now, in some ways that Stratagem turned out to be halfway helpful. Indeed, it probably was part of what prompted or probably part of what enabled passage of things like EITC expansion and um, and, of course, the Affordable Care Act itself. On the other hand, it also set a kind of benchmark that that Clinton and subsequent administrations felt like they had to meet namely to point to indicators of, you know, how children are doing. And as soon as you get a benchmark, you get manipulation of benchmarks and manipulation of data collection and reportage and so forth. And so my guess uh, would be, although I'd have to look further into it to, you know, be able to confirm the suspicion, but my guess is that there's a fair bit of gaming going on when it comes to reporting numbers um, that, that you know, in effect signify or purport to signify improvement in child welfare um, nowadays in a way that there might not have been before the Clinton period, precisely because. Um, uh, Clinton and his successors sort of, you know, foregrounded this as a, as a sort of salient statistic to be looking at.
1: Right. C- create a category to measure and then measure it. Say, oh, we're going to yeah. look at this and we're going to do something. Yeah. The other question this yeah. raises, you know, every time a story about child poverty comes up, uh, I see a chorus of people respond to it by saying there's no such thing as adult poverty or child poverty. There is just poverty. So I wonder, mm. you know, is it is it useful to divide poverty into categories like this? Can can we can we really is it you know can we really look at child poverty as separate from just poverty overall
4: yeah i think i think it's first of all i think it's true that there is no such thing as child poverty that is somehow distinct from adult poverty or general poverty after all most children probably nearly all children you know live in households and a child is only uh, impoverished if that household is impoverished, uh, you know, barring you know a few sort of any outlier cases where there are people who sort of starve their own children, even while they're living high on the hog. But I doubt that's a real common phenomenon. Um, so in that sense, it's not particularly helpful to sort of focus on children, at least if what we're trying to do is, you know, get to the actual nature of the problem and then solve it. On the other hand, if we're thinking in terms of sort of advocative strategy, sort of you know, along the lines I was referring to a moment ago, um, to sort of focus the attention on the most sympathetic cases, um, then of course you can sort of see how tactically speaking or strategically speaking, it might have been viewed as a sort of helpful move by Clinton and his successors to focus on children because it's a lot harder, you know, for right wing Simon Legree types to say, they're just takers instead of makers, you know. They're just lazy and you know lying around <laughs> on their arses or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't really say that about a baby, and so <laughs> it's kind of, But it's also kind of manipulative and exploitative, then, right? It's a little like those cloying adverts that you'll see on cable television sometimes, you know, showing an impoverished child somewhere and you know focusing in with you know sort of zooming in on the child's face with tears coming down the eye or out of the eyes. Um, because the child is so hungry, and then say, like, please send your donation to X. I mean, I feel a little ambivalent about that kind of thing, because on the one hand, if it helps get more money to where it needs to go, really to help in these difficult cases, great. But on the other hand, there's just something kind of horrifying about the exploitation. And also, the way in which it then, you know, kind of segues easily into manipulation uh, of, you know, data manipulation and indicator manipulation of the kind that we were talking about a moment ago.
1: Actually, you know, it's funny. I'm seeing headlines from just an hour ago that said the child mm-hmm. poverty rate fell by nearly half in 2021 as a result mm-hmm. of the enhanced child tax credit. Uh, yeah, exactly yeah Yeah,
4: And, and that's that's a that's a gain it seems to me that's a win um but it's it's not an unmixed gain right i mean for every gain of that kind People, you know, learn, you know, strategy by noticing these kinds of gains and, you know, what worked strategically mm-hmm. or tactically speaking. Um, and that sort of sets the stage uh, for subsequent manipulation of data or statistics or what have you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, yeah, some legitimate um, improvement here. On the other hand, not as great as some of the cheerleaders are, are claiming. Um well, and, and also, also
1: temporary. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. I feel like the theme is also that government intervention has worked. This government program worked. Mm -hmm. It did the thing it was supposed to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. And yet we have failed to extend it.
4: Yeah, yeah. And that that feeds into that bigger problem that we've talked about before when it comes to legislation. There's such a tendency now to rely on gimmickry. So you want to throw everything but the kitchen sink into an omnibus bill. It then becomes difficult for people to understand what's actually in it and what its significance is. But also one of the things that enables that to kind of get through is you say, Oh, this stuff will sunset after a year or after two years or whatever. And then you just kind of hope that Congress will extend it or renew it when the, you know, with the sell by date has almost been reached. And that it feels kind of precarious. I mean, not to I don't want to overuse that word, the precariat here, but there's there's a kind of counterpart to the growth of the so-called precariat in our society, and that is there's a kind of precarity in, in decent legislation itself now. Like, in order to get it passed, you have to say, well, it's going to sunset in about 20 minutes, right. and now maybe even expansion will sign on, you know? And that that kind of sucks because, you know, it'd be kind of nice if people could kind of predict and build their lives to some extent around policies that they can expect to be in place for 5, 10, or 20 years, you and know? And also if it months
1: you know also i mean it's it, it. the other side of that sword too is that you get these headlines you know the people who do mm-hmm. make that happen temporarily get headlines and then yeah. you know after these these uh, clauses sunset you know it's, uh, th- there's not a whole lot of fanfare so you know mm-hmm. there's not it's difficult to then r- restart the pressure that got these uh Provisions included in the first place. Of course, you know, one of the reasons that child tax credit was not expanded was was Mr. Joe Manchin, who is once again at the middle of uh, a political fracas here. He was apparently Mm -hmm. he was apparently either promised these permitting changes or promised a discussion about these permitting changes. And now Mm -hmm. there's a fight between progressives and Manchin over this permitting reform and uh, threats to not, you know, not support the uh, continuing resolution that will fund the government after September 30th. I know you follow mm-hmm. all of this stuff, Robert. So I wondered if you had some thoughts about Joe Manchin popping up once again.
0: <laughs>
1: Either he is the thorn in the side. I mean, some uh, analysts are presenting Sanders as a thorn in the side, which I think is unfair. Uh, what do you make mm-hmm. of this latest fight?
4: Yeah so I think it's funny there are there are sort of two aspects of the sort of the permitting question that that tend to be conflated in a lot of the sort of popular discourse and the political discourse um and I think that the conflating uh, in a way kind of hampers our sort of understanding what's actually at stake and then what best to do about it so on the one hand there's the substance of permitting requirements right what ha- what criteria have to be met in order for some proposed project to be permitted in some locality or some state or what or region or what have you on the other hand there's the sort of level of jurisdiction at which these criteria are decided in other words is permitting a strictly local matter, or is it a state matter, a regional matter, or should it be a national or federal matter? Right? Now, ironically, for a country that considers itself to be fully federalized and you know considers the North to have won the Civil War, thus settling the question of whether we have federal supremacy or not, and with the civil rights, uh, of course, legislation in the 1960s having sort of further settled that this is not about states' rights, uh, it's about basically federal law. Uh, I think we you know we have a remarkably fragmented permitting system where basically the authority seems to be largely vested in localities and in states irrespective of federal agencies' thoughts as to sort of how best to sort of rationalize the national uh, power grid, for example, or how best to sort of rationalize the transport system or what have you. Um, And I think that, you know, it might be a good idea for us, you know, sort of as a nation, if we're still capable of deliberating as a nation, seriously to look at the question of whether we ought to start talking about federal jurisdiction when it comes to permitting of certain certain fields, right, sort of interstate fields, like power grids, which, as you know, are hopelessly patchworky now, partly because we don't have a single federal jurisdiction uh, being exercised over it, and things like the national transportation grid and the railroad grids and so forth, which also don't seem to have much federal regulatory uh, action taking place. Um, and, you know, whether, first of all, whether we shouldn't be doing that, right, at least identifying certain industries or infrastructures as areas of national concern rather than just state or local. And then secondly and relatedly, if we decide that some of those should be federalized, which I think some should, then what should the substance of the actual permitting requirements be, right? What should we require? What's How much is too much to require and how much is too little? Finally, a third point I think worth noting is that I think one of the principal problems, one of the principal holdups up, hold with permitting at the moment is not so much you know, too much red tape or too stringent requirements, as, as people like Joe Manchin are apt to say, but inadequate staffing of public agencies, be they federal, state, or local, to process permits expeditiously in order to decide quickly whether to say yes or no to a project, whether to say um, yes with the following modifications or whatever. If we actually had sufficient staffing of the permitting offices, again, at any level, any jurisdictional level, we would actually see much more rapid permitting. But instead, because they're understaffed, it happens slowly. And that opens the door to people like Joe Manchin to say, well, it's because we have all these environmental restrictions, right. you know, blah, 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 blah. And I just, it's, not, it's just not clear that that's even remotely true. Um, You know, in the absence of adequate staffing, even to sort of get the process going to find out what the holdups are, mm-hmm. whether there are indeed even holdups, you know, once you have staff to process stuff.
1: That was Robert Hockett. He is a professor of law and a professor of public policy at Cornell University. Robert, thanks, as always, for joining us. We really appreciate it.
4: Of course, you guys. Thanks so much. Great to be with you again.
1: We'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. We are going to take a quick break here now on Political Misfits and come back with a little public health roundup that I've been looking forward to. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. And as I said, we've got a little bit of a public health roundup here. We are going to talk a little bit more about the drop in U.S. life expectancy. We're going to talk a little bit about the first death from monkeypox reported in the United States. We will talk about mental health and children and why uh, mental health interventions have been on the rise steadily, not just during the pandemic, but in a couple of years beforehand. And we'll also talk a little bit about some efforts to raise taxes on alcohol and get people to see just how much that legal drug costs us as a society. We are joined for this conversation by Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's a medical doctor. She's co-director of Popular Resistance, and she's a member of the Steering Committee of HOPE health over profit, an organization working to achieve a national improved Medicare for all healthcare system. Dr. Flowers, thanks for joining us again.
5: Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be with you, John and Michelle.
1: So we have talked about uh, the drop in US life expectancy on the show already, uh, but I just wanted to start out by asking how you interpret uh, this steep drop in life expectancy. We are now uh, below dozens of other countries. We are on the verge of falling out of even the top 50 countries when it comes to life expectancy. And while COVID is supposed to account for much of this, you know, I'm also looking at this opioid crisis, this uh, overdose crisis that is accounting for, you know, the taking the lives of more and more people every year. Uh, We have a serious hurdles in this country uh, to accessing preventative health care. And so I wonder what you see in in this statistic.
5: Yeah. And I think, you know, People should know that life expectancy has been dropping in the United States uh, for several years now and you know it becoming steeper after the COVID-19 pandemic and you know after COVID-19 the second biggest reason for the fall in life expectancy was unintentional injuries and opioid overdoses were more than half of that. I think what this really speaks to is you know living in a country where profit is more important than people's lives. And that's very stark in the healthcare system, but it's not just the healthcare system where this problem exists, but you have people who are disconnected from the healthcare system. They don't have a primary care provider. They don't have somebody monitoring their health, educating them uh, You know about how to avoid health problems, or you know, uh, monitoring to see if they, you know, are in a decline in any way. They don't have access to services if they need them. Even if there were services in their community, for many people, the cost is a barrier, so that you know they, they can't get health services uh, because they risk facing financial ruin. So you know, this is all kind of uh, indicative of the bigger picture. You know, if you look at health. The vast majority of our health is determined by what are called social determinants. Do we have a home to live in? Are we in a safe environment? Do we have healthy food? Mm-hmm. How are, you know What are the conditions on our job? Do we have education? All of these things are, you know, all of these basic needs are not being met. And then, you know, look at the environment and look at the way that we poison communities. You know, there's just so many factors here that are causing a decline in life expectancy. So this is not, you know— this is not rocket science, and it's not unexpected when you live in a society such as ours.
1: Yes. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, the, the category, what is it, the accidents, right, that, that overdoses fall into. And I wanted to talk about, you know, we, we have been paying a lot of attention, as a lot of organizations have been, to the opioid crisis. But there was a really interesting article Uh, in the New York Times about the effects of alcohol and efforts by activists in the state of Oregon to raise alcohol taxes. And it highlights how we ignore how destructive alcohol can be. Uh, It notes that in Oregon last year, more than twice as many people died from causes attributed to alcohol than to uh, causes attributed to meth, heroin and fentanyl combined. Um, But over the course of the pandemic, what Oregon and a lot of other states did was make drinking easier, right? Legalizing to-go cocktails, legalizing alcohol deliveries, which were very convenient and enjoyed by many, including myself. Um, But this helped the industry. Uh, Sales rose by 8%. Sales are still way above uh, pre-pandemic levels. But deaths caused by drinking rose by 25%. In 2020, and so in response, some people are trying to raise awareness and raise alcohol taxes because they say raising taxes has an impact. You see fewer deaths uh, when you when you start raising taxes on alcohol, and so you know I, I just wonder what you what you think about how we. Treat alcohol sort of socially, and how we treat it as a as a substance to be regulated by our government. Because John and I, we we mentioned this earlier in the show. I I drink. I have no intention of stopping, uh, but I don't drink that much. Uh, but it just seems like this is the one drug we, where we just ignore we ignore it, right? We ignore its connections with cancer. We ig- ignore the social costs of it, and I just wonder. You know, if we are on a sort of collision course, really, with alcohol.
5: And I'm glad you brought up the industry because I I neglected to mention about the opioid crisis. Of course, opioids are a big industry as well, you know, Mm -hmm. and and the corporations that uh, produced opioids were also, you know, marketing them and making them easily available in poor communities, rural communities, you know, to to, I think there were stories in Ohio and West Virginia about the amount of opioids that were being pushed into those regions. Alcohol, you know, it's similar. It's a big industry in our country. It is uh, marketed heavily. You see it throughout media. You see it being uh, sexualized, associated with you know happy living and fun, and so you know this is really just there to push people to buy, buy, buy. As you said, making it easier uh, again, not having connection to a healthcare system, so that if folks are starting to drink too much or if they have a history of alcoholism in their family. They don't have connection with a health provider that can say look you know this is what you should be looking for or monitoring them. Um, So I I think that's a big issue now when it comes to taxes taxes are a very regressive way to deal with this type of situation because what they do is they punish people who have the least right. So if you are. Living in poverty, and you're an alcoholic, and you need alcohol. You know, you can't get treatment, or you're not ready to get treatment. You need access to alcohol mm-hmm. to actually, you know, function. Uh, then you're going to be. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And what, uh, what are going to what people going to turn to in order to get that alcohol? So taxes is not the solution. We should be looking more at how we as a society treat alcohol in our country, and then looking also at You know, in terms of all of the recreational drugs, I think we're starting to see states moving towards decriminalization. And there's some interesting, you know, studies looking at places where marijuana has been legalized, adult recreational marijuana, and how people are turning to that. And, of course, marijuana is, you know, is a safer drug than alcohol is. You don't have the the blackouts and, and the other things that, you know liver problems and things that have come with alcohol. So um, I think we should be looking at our whole, you know, adult recreational drug use policy in the United States.
1: That is I'm glad you mentioned that about taxes, because, of course, you know, I saw people are saying, look, the statistics are there. When you have higher taxes, you have fewer uh, deaths from excessive drinking. You have fewer uh, car accidents involving alcohol, et cetera. But of course, I think a lot of the places where alcohol is heavily taxed are places that have a pretty expansive social safety net and uh, public uh, or um, a, a national health care system, right? right? And so, yeah, I was thinking like, well, okay, I see I see the statistics there, but it does also seem sort of cruel. Also, you know, even setting aside this idea of, of uh, maintenance drinkers who can't afford treatment, but just to say like, uh, people like to celebrate with a, it's okay to celebrate a little bit with alcohol too. And taxing it out of the reach of, of poor people just seems cruel when that won't, you know, when it's not combined with better, Uh, medical and social intervention.
5: Right. You can't compare the United States to some of these other countries that Mm -hmm. have that stronger social safety net and taxing it, you know, is putting the burden on the individual. The individual is not the problem. It's more of a systemic Mm -hmm. societal problem. Mm -hmm.
1: I also wanted to talk about this uh, story in The Hill about trends in children's mental health over the past five years. Uh, It found steady increases in mental health claims and sharp increases beginning in 2020, kind of unsurprisingly. Uh, It tracked outpatient visits, inpatient visits, and emergency room admissions. And something that interested me is that um, outpatient admissions... Uh, which are, you know, to me, sounds like uh, ongoing mental health therapy, right? You come in, you meet with a doctor, you go home. They did not rise as steeply as inpatient admissions, which increased by 61% over that five years, and emergency room visits, which increased by 20%. Uh, It is mostly teens involved in this trend uh, between the ages of 12 and 19. But that difference to me doesn't send a message that, well, this is just more people being aware of the benefits of therapy and putting their kids in therapy. This really does sort of paint a picture of a, of a mental health crisis. And so I, I wondered what these reports indicated to you.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. We have a mental health crisis in the United States, and looking at the mental health workers that are on strike in Hawaii, and I, uh, I think it's in California as well. We have a, an issue there with the uh, you know number of mental health professionals. So you're not seeing people in outpatient therapy one because of the cost, but also because of the, there just aren't enough providers. I think it's important again to look at the bigger picture of how people are treated in the United States and what our youth, particularly our teens, are experiencing in a country where their parents may be stressed out, they don't have economic security, teens are aware of the climate crisis, they're aware that the politicians, the political system is not prioritizing their lives or dealing with the crises that they face. So, you know, what kind of future are they expecting to have? I mean, having despair in this type of environment where we are facing so many crises, that's a a normal kind of response, Mm -hmm. right? But we don't have the the resources in place to help people navigate the feelings that they have around these crises. And instead, you know, instead of putting more mental health providers into the schools, what do we do? We put police into the schools. Mm -hmm. And this is just, you know, the, the statistics are very clear that when you have more police in schools, more of the students end up in the legal system, particularly if you're black or brown. And it was interesting that, you know, the, the highest proportion of people having, uh, you know, teens experiencing this were people in Medicaid. You know, so this is our low on income people who are uh, likely living in environments where they're seeing perhaps violence or certainly stress mm-hmm. in the people around them. So this is not a surprise.
1: Mm-hmm. And finally, I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the monkeypox response so far in the U.S. Uh, We just had our first death in a patient from L.A. who had a severely weakened immune system. Uh, You know, I don't mention this because I think now we should panic about dying from monkeypox. Uh, but certainly it has continued to spread. It's fallen out of the headlines a little bit. Uh, I wonder how you think the outbreak has been handled uh, so far and, and whether, you know, they, they have kind of caught up to some what appear to be some missteps in the beginning.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, just like the COVID-19 pandemic, we didn't really have a national system in place to deal with the monkeypox pandemic when it began. And so we saw particular areas like San Francisco, like the state of New York, having to on their own declare emergencies uh, to try to deal with the outbreak. I think initially, one of the biggest mistakes was painting this as a sexually treated and transmitted disease or a disease that's more common in homosexuals. It it made people uh, feel like they weren't at risk if they didn't fall into those categories. And the reality is that anybody can contract monkeypox if they come in contact with somebody who has it or somebody who's contaminated the surface you know, with, with the virus. So um, I think public education was definitely misleading at first, but it's still lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we as a country are just not prepared for these types of infectious disease emergencies. And uh, if we had a system where health was- w- a bully. Sorry, i was sad, little <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, uh, If we were here, you know, if, uh, if we were- no in a system that prioritized people's lives, things would be very different.
1: Dr. Margaret Flowers, great to talk to you. You obviously have some very important uh, interviews coming up, so we'll let you go. That was Margaret Flowers. She's a doctor. She's co-director of Popular Resistance and a member of the Steering Committee of Health Over Profit, which works to achieve a Medicare for All healthcare system. Thanks so much for joining us. We are going to take a quick break here now on Political Misfits and come back with some headlines about the Royals and some other news that's my eye we're on Radio Sputnik we're live in DC and we will be right back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here with John Kiriaku, and this is the headline that's been eating away at me <laughs> all day. It's from the AP. Yes. It just... Okay, here it is. Anger over past, comma, indifference meets Queen's death in India. Well, what... What did he expect?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they like, brutalized the Indians. It's
1: astonishing to me that this is a head. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Like
0: has has nobody? Does nobody remember the film Gandhi?
1: Yeah, or RRR again? You want you want to have a really good time for about three hours on Netflix and uh, you know come away with some more. I mean it's a it's a piece of fiction, right? Sure. But. The but the British Raj life. does not come off very well, nor should it, right? No. So yeah, this idea that like, oh, they haven't forgotten about that. Right. Oh, Indians haven't forgotten about that. Oh, but partition, not a not a distant memory that nobody nobody remembers or cares about anymore. I mean, just astonished. I mean, of course, uh, quite a lot leading up to the partition and and all the rest. Just m- mind blowing that they're going around going, oh, oh, are you sorry? You sorry the Queen's passed to all these former colonies, and the colonies are saying, absolutely no. not. No, they're not. You saw they opened some champagne on, on national TV in Argentina?
0: Yeah, I saw that. Pretty, pretty dark, pretty funny. Feelings run very strong in, uh, about the British in Argentina. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, and some other news, you know, uh, I, find, I find the whole relationship between the, the royal family, the wealth of the royal family, and the British state to be perplexing.
0: Agreed. We were just talking last week about how many Brits are, are simply unable to pay their, their heating bills for the winter. Yeah. How many people are living in poverty?
1: And it was pointed out that a couple of weeks back, you had then Prince Charles sitting on a gilded throne talking about the cost of living. I mean, you know, I understand the arguments that the monarchy brings income to the country, but come on. And also, so so we had these headlines today that King Charles is not going to pay tax on the fortune he has inherited from the late queen, although he is apparently going to pay income tax uh, as she began to do after there was a controversy over who should pay for repairing Windsor Castle after a fire. And right. a, after that, she was like, oh, no, no, I'll I'll pay some income tax. But I guess there are there there are like three categories of of asset, right? You have public assets that belong to the British government. There is this um the crown estate, which does not belong to either really like it's not privately owned by the royal family it but you know it's considered public but they're also considered sort of owned by the public so he's not going to pay any taxes uh on that but he's also not going to pay any taxes on some of the private estates that he is going to inherit from his mom. The stuff that she paid income tax on, which is this, uh, the Duke of Lancaster and a couple of other properties and assets that were held in her trust. I don't know why it's not. I mean, I understand not paying, uh, you know, 40% inheritance tax on Windsor Castle or whatever, since I can see the arguments that that is, you know, sort of public. But not paying income tax on On anything else. On the private the inheritance tax on the stuff that she was paying tax on seems to me a little bit shifty.
0: I I mentioned last week that an article years ago in Art News Magazine said that the queen was the the largest um, single... Uh, collector of fine art in the world mm-hmm. that she had again years ago. She had a collection that was worth billions of dollars, and um, he's not going to pay any any taxes on that. Yeah, I, now, I, some of it, of course, is going to be inherited um, by the crown, as they say. Yeah, uh, but still. I mean, I would want some answers. Yeah, I, I also I would enjoy
1: this. Comes from a, a piece in The Guardian about it that Charles is, uh, the royal family is exempt from these taxes and others in order to preserve a degree of financial independence from the government of the day. What a joke. It, oh, yeah, come on. Paying taxes makes me, I mean, I'm pretty sure my government considers me to be pretty financially independent when I'm, you know, dying in the gutter, regardless of whether I've paid taxes to yeah. them or not. Me too. I thought that was pretty funny. Also, this is a pretty meaningless, but a pretty funny headline. Um, that it, I guess Jenna Bush Hager was. Yeah,
0: in she was the last person to to meet with Charles when he was still the Prince of Wales.
1: Yeah, they had a joyful. He was in a relaxed and joyful mood, which is very funny. I mean, I don't think I, you know, but the Queen had been ill. Oh yeah, right. She had been ill for a while. In fact,
0: um, just. Two days before she died, there was a picture of her shaking hands with Liz Truss, Mm -hmm. and her hand was purple. And uh, several people online pointed out, wow, the queen is having some very serious circulatory problems Mm -hmm. if her hand is just pooling blood like that. Yeah, yeah. 48 hours later, she was dead. It's
1: just you kind of think, Jenna, I don't know. If uh she kept her mouth closed, maybe I mean she was there apparently to interview Camilla, and the interview got called off because it you know the the queen passed away, and so I guess maybe she had to produce something, but it is pretty funny that she's produced a you know they have produced and run with this story about my joyful dinner with Charles the night before the queen died
0: <laughs> that, I saw that
1: that made me laugh <laughs> uh we have some other news coming in. I think we will probably talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, but do you see that Lindsey Graham has proposed a national abortion restriction bill? Yeah. I honestly, I'm curious about this. I don't, I mean, I guess maybe Lindsey Graham actually cares about uh, abortion, but it doesn't seem like it's a political winner. You know what I mean? Like abortion for, for Republicans seems like a political loser except for the extremely dedicated. Yeah. People who want no abortions under any circumstances—it's right. a sort of actually ideological, co- ideologically coherent position that murder
0: is murder, yeah. and we're not going to allow it. Right, even um, in cases of rape and incest. Sure, like if why you believe that is a child from the moment of conception? Then why is it okay to kill a child if it's a product of rape or incest? But the people who believe that are yeah. are few in number. Yes, and yes. so
1: I think, why are you? Why rub salt in the wound here? Ahead of the midterms. Why associate yourself? I guess what it is is it's a 15-week ban. Right. Which is roughly where a lot of American popular opinion falls in terms of, you know, acceptability before or after. Right. So maybe they're trying to be extremely clever here and suggesting that, you know, they're going to try to preserve uh, abortion up till that point. So, look, states, you don't have to do anything more draconian. We're going to have this fifteen week ban. Mm-hmm. Ah, maybe I've figured out what they are doing so, there. I
0: just don't trust him as far as I could pick him up and throw him.
1: No, no, why would you no. yeah, Did you, John, unless you have anything more important to talk about, do you fall remember the Kim Kardashian' sex tape? Yes. Thing. Have you seen the most recent piece yes, of news about this? About that, it, our,
0: that they actually made three sex tapes, and that it was her mother who released them.
1: This is coming from Ray J, who How was the other star that? in that sex tape, mm-hmm. which really, uh, you know, propelled Kim Kardashian to the to the mainstream. I guess yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I at the time was addicted to reading gossip websites, so I probably knew who she was. But uh, yeah, it was a t- you know there was a period of time when. Everybody's sex tapes were coming out, Yeah. and it was kind of doing good stuff for their careers. Yeah. So yeah, he yeah. is making the the, the claim team. that's been uh, suggested quite a few times in the past that this was orchestrated by momager Chris Jenner. Chris Jenner, of course,
0: denies it. Right. You know who knows. Chris Jenner was actually strapped to a strapped to a polygraph. Uh, machine a couple of days ago and was asked by what, yeah, James, you know, the Carden, C- Cordon, Corden, yeah, yeah. He asked her, Carden, Corden? might be Carden, doesn't I don't remember. matter, doesn't matter. He asked her on the machine if she leaked the sex tape and she said no. And, and she passed. Well, she's
1: cold blooded.
0: Well, yeah, anybody it.
1: can pass a lot of times. if you're
0: of a sociopath, yeah, you're well, not going to hey, react to questions ex- like that.
1: Interesting, mm-hmm.
0: huh? Yeah, she yeah. also said Kylie Jenner is her favorite child. What? And past. Isn't that awful? Yes. It's also awful that I even know that.
1: Yeah, well, we got That's gotta- what happens
0: when you read the New York Post every day.
1: We all have a lot to repent for, John. <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. Uh, I want to say of course thanks to everyone who joined us before we got to the celebrity gossip portion of the show. <laughs> thanks to the engineers and producers here and on behalf of John Kiriaku and myself Michelle witty, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.